Welcome to the Maternal Health Innovation, a podcast from Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center at UNC Chapel Hill, where we connect around culture, measures, and best practices in maternal health. The purpose of these conversations is to authentically explore what's working well and think together about ways to strengthen care for birthing parents, families, and those seeking to serve them. At the MHLIC, we're thrilled for the opportunity to speak with experts on ways we can better serve families and advance maternal health equity. I'm Dr. Kimmery Bug, President and CEO of Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere, a nonprofit working to eliminate breastfeeding disparities in the African American community. Today, I'm speaking with Stevie Marino, mother, anthropologist, doula, and founder of Soul and Roots. Stevie studies birth disparities and traditions of Pacific Islanders and Camaro people. We're also joined by Towen Tsing, mother, journalist, covering education and maternal health, activist for workplace justice and lactation rights. Today, we'll be talking about lactation practices within Asian and Pacific Islander communities. Thanks for joining me, Stevie and Towen. At this time, I would absolutely love for each of you just to introduce yourselves to us. Tell us what brought you to this work. Um, Can we start with you, Stevie? Yes, I love talking about myself. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, So my name is Stevie Marino, and I was brought to this work really by extension of having my own child six years ago. I was in school. I had just finished school to essentially become a professor. Eventually, I was not interested in birth or pregnancy or breastfeeding. I know how sexual education works, but I was one of those people that was like, if you talk about it, it's going to happen to me. And I don't want this in my life right now. And, you know, I ended up having a now six-year-old and it was like, it sounds cheesy, but my life sort of started in that moment. And not necessarily because of the child, which yes, it did start because of him also, but because of my career and life path, it was like a fast moving train into birth work. Um, which, you know, uh, not just in being a doula, but also in being a lactation professional, in doing trainings. I have a collective called the Birth Workers of Color Collective that's nationwide. And our goal and mission is to provide accessible services, culturally relevant services to communities of color. And it also helps and guided my educational path. So a lot of my research as a graduate student, as a leader in anthropology is on Pacific Islander and Chamorro breastfeeding, chest feeding and birth traditions and disparities, which are so not really researched or there's very little data for, but it's so necessary because they're so high when we do see breakdowns of this, you know, different health outcomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I understand. And Towen, please tell us about you. 
Uh, yes. So I have been a health reporter for a long time, but what really brought me into the lactation rights field is really uh, when I returned to my newsrooms eight years ago after giving birth to my first child. And my rights to pump at work was denied and the company refused to provide either a space or a, um, or a break time for me to pump. So I eventually went through a lawsuit just to get a reasonable space to pump and a reasonable time. And it is very ironic because that was a Chinese language newspaper and I was a health reporter there writing about a maternal health there. And yet my right to pump at the very place was denied. And during this process of going through this lawsuit and everything, I learned that I was not alone. Many Asian women, especially the first generation immigrants, they face lots of barriers and they often don't know their right. And for example, when I was fighting for my rights to pump at work, I talked to my supervisor and tried to persuade him that how important it is. And he was like, oh, we are Chinese. We don't do the American thing. And when I tried to invite some Chinese speaking lactation consultant or professional to my company and to talk to my supervisor, I could not find one Chinese speaking professional who can speak to my supervisor. And unfortunately, my supervisor doesn't speak English. And that was in Los Angeles, the largest home to Chinese people outside of China. So it's just a, a rude awakening and make me realize how my community is underserved. And that is what brought me to this field. Wow, <laughs> that is amazing. Um, so many times what we experience, our lived experience really sets a path for us to, to move forward in so many ways. And, you know, a lot of times um, the, the, the trauma in birth or just not knowing, like you say, not having the resources to understand what's happening and why definitely sets us on a path to not want other women and mothers to have to experience what it was that we got to build those bridges, right? It's so so um, true. I, I would like to know next, um, what are some qualities of Asian lactation practices? Yeah, um, when I think about Asian Pacific Islander, and I want to be very clear and intentional about speaking about these two different um, groups of people because we are very different. Though we are grouped together, you know, this was sort of an arbitrary grouping that governments have and the census have put together, um, but we do have different needs, um, different identities, and even within our umbrellas, right? For Pacific Islanders, there's many, many islands. For Asian folks, there's many, many countries, and all with varying needs, representations, and diversity, right, and disparities. And so I think for me, you know, as a lactation professional, one of the things that I saw was that um, most of the spaces that I was in, you know, not just on an educational level in lactation, but also on a professional level. So like conferences, seminars was predominantly white in a city, you know, I'm based in Los Angeles, California, um, in a city that is extremely diverse. And so the representation was spoke volumes, essentially, right? It also spoke to the need. And so one of the things that I think that, um, you know, we and I have tried to be very intentional about is that representation piece is like making sure that I'm present in spaces so that people know and see that there are 
lactation professionals doing this work and that it doesn't need to look like a specific person. Um, because I think even when like talking to elders, when I go into homes of Asian and Pacific Islander folks, most of them are multi-generational homes or they have family supporting, right? And I can't tell you how many times at first, you know, the families are very judgmental that someone is from the outside is coming in to support them. Um, and then after they're like, oh my gosh, you know, so many of our traditions and our practices, like taking off your shoes when you, before you walk into the home, greeting everyone that's in the room, very simple cultural things that could totally be missed by someone who was not a part of these communities or didn't make the effort to learn about these communities before serving them. Um, so these are just a few things, but I think it goes back to that like cultural relevancy and humility piece, right? Of like, yes, I'm supporting the lactating person, but I also understand that their family unit or whoever their support system is going, is going to impact how the care is received and how the education is received. Amazing. Towen? So I just want to thank Stevie and I want to echo her about this diverse part. Asian and Pacific Islander, we trace our root to more than 20 different countries and each has a very unique culture and context. And even between the, under the same umbrella, say Chinese American or Korean American, even under the same uh, country origin, the first generation and the second generation are very different. Okay. I'm not a health provider, but I, I'm a health reporter and I really think health providers should be aware of that. And also Stevie talked about knowing the, the culture and engaging the family. I want to emphasize that it's very important in Asian, cultures, it's very important to engage the families. For example, in Korean or Chinese or Japanese families, the mother-in-law is very powerful. And even though the young and educated young mother wants to breastfeed, and but the older generation are often, they still have this impression that formula is even better. So if even if the young mother wants to breastfeed, but the mother-in-law doesn't support, then breastfeeding is not going to happen. So when a lactation consultant work with an Asian family, I mean, uh, particularly the, uh, the Korean people and the Chinese people, Vietnamese people, re they really needed, needed to engage with the whole family, the husband, the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law is often a decision maker and the husband can change what the mother-in-law think, but the, the mother cannot. So this is just an example how, uh, here in America, we are, we, we are very, uh, uh, individualism. So we feel that we can make our own decision. But in Asian American families, it's often not that case. Wow, that's I'm I'm learning so much, and and this is phenomenal. Um, so what I'd like to ask next is, of Pacific Islander lactation um, practices, what what are some sort of specific practices of your culture, and as it uh, relates to lactation. Yeah, I think for me, you know, one of the things that I've seen in the research that I do pertaining to Pacific Islander traditions, but also in speaking to elders and community members and being very engaged in the Pacific Islander 
communities that I'm in is that, you know, we try to, especially because we live in diaspora, right? So I think that that's also important to note that the experience of living in diaspora is very different, but because island populations are so small already, and then with COVID and everything else, our populations are unfortunately even more, you know, becoming smaller, there is still a very strong connection to like ancestral traditional practices and ties, or at least that revitalization and relearning and reclaiming of it. And so very simple things, you know, that I've noticed in terms of like, you know, as Toen had had sort of alluded to with, with Asian populations and communities is that elders and, you know, whether it be a mother-in-law, if the person is married, or, and you know, the person is still living or just family members and elders in general, like a lot of lactation practices do come from them, right? So I have a lot of people who maybe their elders say, oh, well, you know, at this many months, this is what we give the babies because breast milk isn't enough. You know, whether that's accurate research-based information or not, most people are gonna follow what their elders are saying just as you know that's a very cultural thing maybe not to listen about going out late or like those sort of things but when it comes to like you know health-based practices many do follow what their elders say and especially if they're living in the same homes right there are power dynamics um, that exist and even sometimes if they don't live in the same home so I think that that's one of the things that I see. And so that's also one of the reasons that I make sure to communicate and build relationships with the family as well. Um, so that they're like, oh, well, remember Stevie said, and then they're like, oh, yeah. And it's also this healing practice, right? Of like, for instance, my family comes from Guam. Um, Guam during World War II, which is very recent history, uh, was taken over by Japan. It's a very, it was a very war torn in the middle of, you know, everything that was happening. And so there's a lot of war trauma that exists. So a lot of people, you know, when it comes to breastfeeding and lactation um, and all of these sort of things, obviously have a lot of historical trauma and body trauma, right? And so being able to have clients who, you know, are also Chamorro and their moms and their aunts and other family members are seeing them being able to breastfeed and have a postpartum that looks very different than their experiences is multi-generational healing, right? Um, and I've had so many elders tell me like, wow, I really wish I had this support. I really wish I had this knowledge. You know, when we think about lactation, we think about traditions and practices, we also have to think of the ways that like we are healing generational things and how that's going to impact what the future of breastfeeding and lactation looks like. Um, and just from like a, a little like side, you know, tradition that a lot of people use is coconut oil. Coconut oil, I, I love to talk about it. I know it's like all the fad now and it's very popular, um, but people on islands have been using coconut oil since forever. And so, you know, coconut oil as like a massage tool for your lymph nodes, for your breasts, for even consumption, for the nutritional benefits um, or perceived benefits. Those are things that a lot of people use and that are recommended for breastfeeding. And, you know, I never like to talk about things as like 
everyone in the culture does. And, but that's something that I've definitely noticed and that I, I recommend for my clients um, because I think, you know, we, we love to buy things in this culture, all the different like breastfeeding tools and things that people tell us that we need when like we can really go back to basics for a lot of things. Wow. I feel like, look, in, in the Black tradition, you know, when something really strikes home with you, you say, say it again. I feel like saying, say it again. Actually, I understand, you know, we want to buy so many devices and gadgets and pillows and all those things when, you know, there's so many wonderful things that just come naturally. Uh, and Towen, can you tell us about some practices, traditions? So, um. I am a co-founder of Asia and Pacific Islander Breastfeeding Task Force. And when we founded this task force in 2017, people often ask me, why did you do this? Asian people have great breastfeeding rates. Everybody asks, and they still ask today. Well, that's true. But there is a if you but if you break down these numbers, you will see there's a big gap between the first and the second generation. Why is that? Because the first generation, they are facing even more barriers, language, culturally, and everything. And here I want to say that uh, immigrants, immigrants, they came to our country from over the world and many of them have experienced things that's hard for us to imagine. And these experiences can affect their health choices. And uh, for example, breastfeed or not, in this case, what we're talking about. And Stevie talked about her friends, about their trauma experiences they have in Guam. And which just reminded me about my grandmother, Stevie. I heard this about her story before. My grandmother escaped from China during the 1949 Civil War and with her two young children, three and one year old, who were my father, then three-year-old, and my uncle, one-year-old. And my grandmother had to continually breastfeed them on the refugee boat to keep them alive. Not just to provide them the food, but because the kids were so scared, they were crying. And other refugees, they were afraid that the communists searching for the, the runaways on the sea would capture them. So they were going to throw the kids into the, into the ocean. And my grandmother had to constantly put them on their breast for 48 hours to keep them alive. And my grandmother, she did such a brave thing, but was she proud? No, she felt ashamed. And until the day she passed away, she still associated breastfeeding with war, depression, violence, and all this negative experience. And once the family arrived in Taiwan, my grandmother got herself a full-time desk job. It was, it was very rare for women of her era. And she was very proud of that. She used all the money to buy formula. And she was very proud of that all my youngest four uncles and aunts were formula fed. And when we moved to America, she cannot understand why I decided to breastfeed when we can buy all the best formula, American formula in the world. And you know what? I can tell you that for a very long period of time, I think it's a unique experience of my family. But not until that I became a health worker from a health journalist and walk into my community, I realized it's a collective experience in many Chinese families or any Asian families that experience the world war. So when we work with them, think about this. I know many clinical people have lots of knowledge and uh, they have lots of uh, theories that's all very good. 
But what we need to do is we need to show up in the community and be empathetic, be supportive, ready to support instead of educating the community that we are going to work with. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit emotional. But that's what I'm trying to say here. Wow. So am I. I'm getting emotional too. I'm just I'm writing down a lot of this stuff. And what I'm hearing is about the generational trauma again, which is definitely something, you know, that that's hit many non-white communities in so many different ways. And that people who work with communities need to be good listeners. That's so true. And we aren't. We, we, we learn how to talk. We learn how to write beautifully to produce all the research and the information, but we don't, they don't listen well to actually hear about the lived experience of the communities. And communities know that now. And they're not taking it anymore. And I'm just so um, excited that that you all are, you know, and I know you've always been here and you're, you're um, the folks you work with and, you know, the wonderful communities. It's just that, you know, we're all working so much in our little silos trying to save our communities that we got to share like this more often so we can see that, you know, this trauma that we're going through and all these things we can work on together to make it better for all of our communities, which leads to our next question. How do we advocate and support the the communities and the specific, you know, mothers and, and birthing people and families? How do we advocate for that to make this better? We want to reach Lactopia, where everyone has the choice to decide themselves. After we provide resources and information that they can inf- themselves of what's best for me and in my space and then we want them you know to choose what they want and for us to be able to support them to be successful at that but what do we need to get there in your communities I think that we need to look at things from a global context right one of the things that is most important I mean, besides everyone having resources and the right to clean water and all of those sort of things, which is a big thing, but is predatory formula yes. sort of, you know, a, approaches globally, right? I remember when I breastfed, everyone was like, hey, Stevie, that's something we do on the islands. Like, are you financially struggling? Do you need money? And I was like, sure, I need money, but also that's not why I'm doing this, right? And so this idea that like, Uh, we breastfed because poverty, right? Because this is what formula companies, if you've ever seen a formula ad or commercial in another country, it talks about how they could be like these amazing, like violinists, you know, just all of these such predatory, like ways of targeting other, you know, communities that maybe don't have the same um, laws or abilities that, you know, here in the United States, which even in the United States, let's be very real, formula companies do have a grasp and hold on so many care providers and just in our communities as a whole, right? Um, But I think that that's really one of the, the strong pieces that I would say needs to change. Um, Because when people come from other countries and or even our families, you know, back home, their ideas is that the United States 
formula is what mm-hmm. all of the, you know, celebrities and people that we quote unquote want to be like are doing. And so why would we breastfeed there? It just doesn't make sense that our bodies where we've historically been told aren't enough, aren't good enough, you know, aren't all of these things could provide what our babies need to be smart, to be successful, to be all of the things that, you know, especially countries that have been, you know, sort of pillaged and now have like all of these poverty issues, et cetera, et cetera, don't necessarily believe that that they can provide for their children, right? And so I really think that we need to be involved in these efforts, that people here with privilege and with money need to be involved in these efforts. And then I think just like cultural reflection is so important. And so there needs to be more financial efforts and resources geared towards people in the communities who are already doing this work, who already have their boots on the ground, so to speak, and who have ties to the community because we need more representation and more people doing this work. And that's not to say that representation is the the fix it. It's really a band-aid, but it is important for more people to be involved who are already doing the very important community work uh, because that really is going to shift a lot of the, the mindset and also the ways that people, I know a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, we don't go to the hospital. That's just not a brown thing to do, you know, unless you're dying or you're having a baby, which are both, like, why are those the only reasons? Why are those the the go-to reasons, right? Um, And so I think that having more representation, having language access, all of these things can make it feel like a more represented and more just, you know, maybe more willingness to seek out support when needed. Um, And then the last thing I think is, you know, for Asian Pacific Islanders, most of our data is aggregated together. So very few places do you see it broken down by Pacific Islanders, by different Asian communities, populations. And so disaggregated data is so important. Medical professional hospitals, researchers, they need to do the work to start making sure that they're getting this data separated so that we can put the resources where the needs actually are. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Drop your mic. Just drop your mic, Stevie. <laughs> uh, Toen, what can, how can we advocate in your community to reach that, the level of, of breastfeeding that we, we need our communities to have? Yes, right. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Dr. Bog. I just want to say that I think we need to think outside of the box. When we talk about maternal health, we often think about, oh, uh, we take care of a woman so that she is healthy during the pregnancy and give a childbirth and breastfeed, and then that's it. But you know what? I think maternal health is more than that. It's about uh, how we can ensure a woman and her baby to reach her full potential of overall, overall well-being. And here in the first generation Asian immigrant community, and I like to emphasize first generation because this is a group that I work a lot with. And for them, if they are, they often have lots of like language barriers like Stevie talked about. And, and if they are facing such a great language barrier that would hinder their chance to have a successful birthing experience or 
to hinder the mother's ability to breastfeed. Then she's facing lots of other hardships in other aspects of her life. And all these hardships would impact her health overall well-being in a negative way. So when I work with my community, I often think about how can we fix all these problems together, not just to make sure, hey, you breastfeed. I think our job is more than to help mothers to breastfeed. For example, I am a health reporter, but I also hold a certificate in Chinese English interpretation, and I often provide pro bono interpretation service in my community. And I see it from firsthand that how important it is to have language appropriate material and services for my people. And also, I also think that my there is an urgent need of the access to adult literacy education in my community. I'm not saying that, oh, it's the immigrants' fault because they don't speak English, so that's why they have bad health outcomes. No, it's the society's um, responsibility. We have this responsibility to give, give them the access, to equip them, to empower them. They need more than, um, I, I heard lots of um, clinical people say, oh, we'll just provide them uh, translation and interpretation and they will be fine. That is good, but not enough. Providing immigrants with multilingual services and materials is to give them a fish, but we also have the responsibility to teach them how to fish. We don't say, hey, here's a fish, bye-bye. No, that's not good, that's not enough. We also need to show them how to fish and with a very culturally sensitive approach to help them, to equip them, and I, I want to say that I just the, the only reason that I can be sitting here have this conversation with you and be a voice for my community is because I speak English, although with a very strong accent. And I just hope that everybody in my community can have this ability. This would really improve the overall well-being of my community. Oh, wow. <laughs> He said, like, I'm, I'm not going to get emotional either. It's just so much. It's so much that was in both of those. And Dr. Allison Stuby, who is also at UNC Chapel Hill, one of the things that she's always said is that, you know, you have, you know, the mother is the wrapper and the baby is the candy. And once the candy comes out of the wrapper, we just toss the wrapper away. So we just toss the mom away and everything's focused on the baby. And that just hasn't worked. And you've also talked both kind of talked about what we call the allostolic load, the, the stress and the stress that just pushes down on shoulders of, of non-white communities continuously due to the inequities and the discrimination and the white supremacy and all of those things that also lends to a lot of the disparities and inequities, of course, that, that we face. I love the information about the, the data being um, broken up to specifics so we can definitely see, you know, we, none of us are monolith. You know, when you say the Black community, there's so much in there. And uh, we really need to break those down so that we have more information. And I am so happy to see that as the years go on, the CDC has done much better at breaking down that information because there's so much there that was not there four years ago. So they are definitely working on that. And that is phenomenal. But we got a long way to go, of course. But um, 
So what can others do? For example, if, you know, folks came to you and said, I have a billion dollars, um, what can I invest in to make these disparities, these inequities go away? What, what ideas can we give them? A billion dollars. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things. I, I think that basic resources is always where I'm going to start, you know, with a billion dollars, you know, clean water, I think is so important, not relevant, but also relevant is when there are disasters, a lot of people send formula, powdered formula. And it's just like, if there's a disaster, and there's no running water, no clean running water, you know, a lot of babies are going to be ingesting formula that's not very sanitary, right? Not sterilized. And so clean water is so important, I think, but also just, you know, access to safe schools, housing, right? Like, we as lactation professionals oftentimes are like, oh, these are the new pumps, the new electric pumps, all of these sort of things. And it's like, what if people are houseless? What if they don't have secure housing or stable housing or safe housing? Do you really think they have, you know, the capacity to pump with a pump that needs to be plugged into and then also put into a freezer or refrigerator, right? And so, you know, we often don't think about these things. Um, and then I also think just like work. We think that there's this, this stay-at-home mom trope, <laughs> which isn't really accurate for most families of color because of the financial necessity of a two, three, four, five income home to be able to just survive in the United States, right? And so I think that, you know, having access to paid family leave, whatever that looks like, um, is super important and super vital for people to be able to, you know, have a relatively just surface level positive postpartum experience, right? Or at least put people at, you know, the, the starting point of the race, because I think that so many of us are so far from the start of the race that there's, it just is like this, you know, sort of dark cloud for so many newly postpartum people. And so, you know, I always go back to the basics, housing, you know, water, food, job security, like those sort of things. I think with the billion dollars, there's so many things that we could do. And, you know, the sad part is, is that when we have to envision these things, we're never really thinking about our government, right? Like, I think most of us are like, there's no way the government would ever put a billion dollars towards anything related to these things. And I think that it's also the people's responsibility to start shifting that um, and demanding better. You know, you mentioned the census. The only reason the CDC started to separate the groups was that Pacific Islander advocates and activists have been fighting for so long to be separated from this umbrella, right? So it wasn't because the CDC was like, oh, I'm feeling gracious today. No, it was because of the <laughs> efforts by so many community folks. And so 
yeah, those are the things that I would say with a billion dollars. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, COVID has showed us a lot of that, what, what you said about how it affects what they call essential workers who are, again, those black and brown bodies that have died uh, disproportionately because they're out there serving um, and and all those obstacles that you're talking about have been in the way. I have this picture of this woman and another and a guy getting ready to race and she has, you know, pitfalls and walls and all these things. And he has a straight row that, you know, and he's like, well, you know, it's the same distance, but she has all these barriers to go through. And Towen, what are you going to do? How are we going to advocate that billion dollars so that we can eliminate disparities? Yes, I totally agree with Stevie that we should go back to the basics. Uh, they say the three pillars of American dream are housing, health, and uh, college. And yes, I think we should. Um, first, I am a big advocate for a universal health care. I believe that we need that. And uh, the last time I checked, America is one of the very few countries, developed countries in the world that does not have a universal health care. We can do better. And also housing. I don't have to say more. Stevie said a lot. And also education. You know, I, I cannot emphasize more because I, I cover early education and maternal and infant health. And I feel these two things are very related. And I have authored six books all about early education. I cannot emphasize this more. And you know, he, in the immigrant community, the AAP American Association of Pediatrics has been teaming up with RIF, Reading is Fundamental, which is a, a literacy promoting organization. They have been working together to improve the literacy skills for immigrant children. And why don't we do the same thing for adults, for the parents and the moms? We should do that. And why don't we? And I recently have been talking to some clinical people and I say, oh, I think what they are doing for the kids are great. We should be doing this for an amount too. And they say, nah, that will, be, that will make us look like blaming the patients. I was like, no, we are not forcing to, them to learn, but we are going to give them a, an access to this resource. And I have been providing pro bono interpretation services in my community for such a long time. I know there are many mothers, they want to, they want to improve their language skills so that they can be helpful to their kids and get a better job. Stevie talked about it works. That's also very important. It's financial security, right? or economic security. I don't know which one is the, the, the correct term, but you know what I mean here. And we we need to give them this. Absolutely. Well, one of the things I did want to bring up too is you talked about those language barriers, which definitely have, has touched me also deeply as a nurse practitioner. I've worked with families for years and had to call a line or, you know, have someone come in, you know, when it's Spanish, a lot of times there are people in the hospital who speak Spanish, but, you know, then you have this line and you got to pick up the telephone and, and put them on, you know, speaker to speak with the mom. And that's been painful for me because I, I care deeply about this is more than just a job, you know, and, and so it's very um, problematic when I cannot make sure that what is being said to the mom is what I'm trying to get to her so that, you know, 
she can do as well as possible uh, when she leaves with, with that beautiful baby, you know, and it's always been my perspective that all babies are mine until they go home with their mom. So, you know, those are all my babies. So I definitely understand how difficult that is, that, that language line. And we definitely need representation matters. It, it really does. And I mean, you, you break down a lot of that problems of trust. When I walk into a room and I look like and I speak like and I, you know, have information and, and things like the people who I'm serving that are there, you have a little bit of trust already. And so that really helps tremendously. So um, Stevie also mentioned that the government and, you know, you don't think about the government. I just want to say right now, today of all times, and that just struck me when you said that they're really trying to pass that, what, $3 trillion bill that actually includes a lot of those things that we're talking about. And again, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's really you know, phenomenal that we're at least hearing that. I just truly hope that it doesn't take 30 years for us to get to that. But they have the college in there, the child care, the family leave, all of those things. But yeah, we know where it is right now. So go ahead, please, Toen. You're saying. Yes. Um, thank you, Dr. Buck. First, I want to echo you what you said. Um, f- right now, we're also working very hard to passed that pump act and the representative is going to vote the, uh, this week, I believe. And I, I we, we have been, activists across this country has been lobbying very hard. And yesterday we saw President Biden has released a statement saying that he support this bill, even though it's still being in the voting process in the house. That is very encouraging. I, f- I feel that they heard us. So, uh, even though, yeah, Stevie was right. Um, we often think, oh, there's no way that the government is going to t- going to listen to us. But it's worth trying, and we just have to keep trying. And uh, back to the one more thing that I wanted to say that I feel that um, I hope that all the health workers can show up in the communities more often, not to try to bring communities to you. You go out of your office and walk to the community and look at those people, and get to know them. Absolutely. Thank you. And Stevie. Yes. Yeah, I want to echo the sentiments that you both expressed about, you know, the government. I think we've seen throughout the decades that like people, power and activism is really what like gets things moving. And so I'm a strong proponent for that. You know, that's where a lot of my advocacy and activism is very much rooted in. And so I think that especially during COVID, as so many of us are so separated and isolated from community and from other people, I know the world, or at least this country is opening up a little bit. Um, It's easy to be um, disheartened or, you know, feel like, there's just no hope for so many things. And I, I really just want to encourage folks to look at history and look at the ways that like people have resisted and have made things possible and how we won so many things, right? And that we still can win. And the last thing that I wanna say is just that our communities do not need more saviors or perceived saviors. We need people who are actually interested in collaborating and in supporting and in, you know, being collaborative, community-oriented partners on this path to collective 
liberation, whatever that means for all of us. And so I think that, you know, we need to really move away from saviorism. And, you know, these are people that I really want to help and all of these things and educate because you are going to reach people that are not interested or trusting because we've heard all of those things before. Okay, well, uh, I am so thankful for both of you. Thank you for, for listening, everyone, for podcasts, videos, blogs, and maternal health content. Visit the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center website at maternalhealthlearning.org. I am Dr. Kimmery Bug, and we'll see you soon on Maternal Health Innovation. Have a great day. This project is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, under grant number U7CMC33636, State Maternal Health Innovation Support and Implementation Program Cooperative Agreement. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.